welcome to the Impact Innovation Podcast, the show where we sit down with entrepreneurs from different pockets of the world, and they share with us what they're doing to make a difference. I'm James Digby, and alongside me, our co-host for season one, Michael Waits, we'll be bringing you deep dives and a spotlight into what's happening on the ground in the world of impact innovation in Southeast Asia. The sessions will be taking wild detours whilst giving insights into how to build and scale an impactful business that has the ability to change the lives of the next 3 billion. In this upcoming episode, we caught up with Courtney Savvy-Lawrence, a national native currently residing in Bangkok, where she teaches at the School of Global Studies at Thammasat University and facilitates workshops and training on design thinking and social innovation. She shares with us how blown away she is by her students' urgency and creativity in social innovation, where, in her own words, is about thinking creativity in fresh ways that are going to be disruptive in terms of changing the status quo and meeting the global challenges. It's a great episode, and we hope that you enjoy the show. Hi, it's Michael Waits. Hey, Courtney, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am on fire. It's pouring where I am, and there's something about me that likes the kind of melancholy of rain sometimes, so it's been a good morning so far. Yeah. yeah. yeah Interesting. Absolutely. I like it. No, no drop in the sky over here. <laughs> yeah, you and I are a little bit far away. So you want to give me a little bit of background about you? Where are you from originally? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, originally from the U.S., uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I don't think you'll find much of a Southern accent uh, when I'm speaking, but that's exactly where I am from. But for the past seven years or so, I've been based in Asia and in other chapters of my life, also been based in uh, Central America, South America and, and South Africa. Do you consider yourself a traveler or a travel enthusiast? In other words, it's something you do for fun, <laughs> for work? Why are you laughing? <laughs> No, it's just, it's such a, 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 it's been such a big part of my life that, um, that, yeah, I absolutely would say that um, all of those things uh, above starting, I think, originally as a, you know, just exploring mysteries and, and a passion to see new things and, and follow curiosity. And then that's led to different opportunities to actually intertwine all of that with, with work, which then becomes work travel and that's that's a little bit different for sure and i didn't get on an airplane until i was 15 or 16 years old right so travel to me was something that was always exotic and for very wealthy people and i think what i realized over time was that travel now is more about exploring rather than going someplace to find luxury if that makes sense what do you think i think it would depend on who you ask i think everybody has a different uh relationship to it and for me, it, it never really was about um, the luxury piece, although I, I would say the same. I, w- I didn't grow up in a family which, you know, flew the whole family over into different vacations. Um, yeah, never. Yeah, that was, that was a never. Um, it was a really special investment to experience. And I think that's also another thing, too. I grew up where my parents really prioritized um, valuing experience. So... We did invest in not so much things, but it might be an, an educational type of experience. Um, right after high school, I, my, my graduation gift was to go to the Rocky Mountains. So I, I flew, I did fly to Lander, Wyoming, but I spent a month backpacking in the Wind River Range um, wow. and literally didn't take a shower for 28 days. And uh, didn't see a mirror. We just basically uh, hiked and, and, and lived in quite simple 
simple way, learned how to survive, quote unquote, in the wilderness. Um, and so that was something in which, it, you know, it wasn't cheap per se, but uh, it was a simple type of uh, travel. For me, travel's been this thing, it's, it's bifurcated over time, right? When I was younger, and once I started working, it actually became this thing of, I want to go to a resort somewhere. And the more I traveled, the more I realized that doing that didn't teach me anything. And I always wanted yeah. to learn. I always had this feeling of, I just want to experience what it's like to be a local, right? You know, you go to the front mm-hmm. desk at a hotel somewhere at a resort and say, I want to have the best local food. And they'll send you to some really terrible touristy restaurant. <laughs> and then you stop asking. But I think one of the things that happens to me over time is that when I do start interacting with local people, when I just, you know, go left, when everybody says go right, I start getting much better experiences. But then I start also noticing that the world is kind of bifurcated as well between people that sort of have a lot of resources and people that have not been allocated a lot of resources. And that makes me think even more. Now when I travel, like I'm, I'm right now in a hotel and that hotel is a $27 a night hotel. And that's on purpose because I wanted, I want to be able to experience what's going on around me and not just get stuck in a resort somewhere. And I think you need to get a better understanding. We need to get a better understanding about like what's happening in the world. That's not related directly to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Anyway, so do you want to tell me what brought you to Bangkok in particular? Again, I would say I've just been exploring curiosity um, my whole life. There's been a, there was a combination of force fields at play. And one um, specifically was uh, prior to Bangkok, I was uh, recruited to help launch a global studies program in Japan at a university. It, w- it wasn't the first place I was imagining going to, but I took a leap and uh, left one of the companies that I had co-founded in the U.S. Um, for this incredible opportunity, which would allow me to see a lot of the region. And part of what I was focused on was social innovation, uh, design and impact and entrepreneurship. I also ended up meeting my my now husband, while he was working in Vietnam. Uh, so we were long distance for a few years. So it was, a, like I said, a few different things, but one of them being um, intention to live in the actual same city as someone that you're, you're dating. <laughs> and, and it's such, also, a novel, such a novel modern <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, we met actually in, uh, through, through, kind of through Airbnb. His, uh, his friend was my Airbnb host. And so I met him, you know, same kind of thing. Like, where are the locals going tonight for dinner? You know, I'm staying on purpose with a... A local person, um, but not not Vietnamese, but someone that knew the city, and yeah, that's that was that. But Bangkok is an incredibly dynamic city for innovation, impact, um, just change in the region, it and is. so that was a natural place uh, to navigate towards. In, if you know, in, out of all of Asia, to me, this is one of my favorite places on the planet, and it's got so much going on. So I lived in Japan for twenty two years. So whenever anybody says that they did something in Japan, I want to know more. <laughs> Which university were you working at and how did they find you? I was not in any of the, let's say, you wouldn't say it's Tokyo. It was in Hiroshima. So Hiroshima Jogokuin University. Got it. And the president of the university, uh, she and I had known each other for about uh, six or I think around six years. We were on the, we're on the same executive committee for um, international NGO that's based in Geneva. So when we have our annual meetings, um, I was a quote unquote youth representative. This is in a, in my twenties. We were also in an elevator on the way to dinner and she goes, Hey, do you want to come to Japan? And I'm like, sure. What's going on in Japan? <laughs> Again, at this point I'm, I'm living in the U S running a social enterprise. And, uh, she's like, Oh, we're having a peace seminar. Uh, you should come. It's one week in August. And so 
You know why the peace seminar is in August, right? Of course. I, I lived in Hiroshima, so this is commemorating. And for anyone who's listening, you know, August 6th is, is the day that the atomic bomb was dropped in uh, Hiroshima. Right. Um, I was there on August 6th, 1995, by the way, in the 50th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb. It was pretty intense. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it, anyway. it's, it, yeah, I've been there now, I think, three different uh, Augusts, and it's, and it's always quite... Uh, quite powerful um, mm. in, a, in a very interesting way. Um, not particularly uplifting, but anyway. No. And, and not meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, she basically said, um, yeah, we have this peace seminar. And I said, well, do you want me to do something I can facilitate? I, I studied in a, in a university. It's actually a UN university for peace and conflict studies. So that was as a study of sustainable economic development, but we have, you know, we understand we've deconstructed different parts of peace and conflict. So I was like, I can help. And she's like, okay, yeah. And so I was thinking, okay, cool, you know, free trip to Japan, explore something I've not seen before. And um, once I arrived, had a great time. And on the last night, she said, okay, the real reason I brought you is I want you to move here and work for me. I, I really need, I need a, a young A sneaky woman. job interview. Oh, she's, she's a Jedi. Um, and she goes, I know that you wouldn't have said yes if, if I just asked you without seeing it. So I, I want you to come. And uh, I, I want you to come for two years, and this is what I want you to do. And I'm thinking, you're crazy. Um, you think I'm just going to say yes? And so actually, uh, after about four months of negotiation and, and getting a lot more kind of just description and, and, and me becoming more curious and interested, I um, thought, wow, this would be really interesting, teaching at a university level, building programs throughout the region, having a research budget to do and explore whatever I want. Um, I made the leap, and, and wow, the rest has been history. I really thought I would I would – moved to like the US again after my contract and when was life that? has taken a different direction. Oh, that was in, yeah, about seven years ago. Wow. What was your original interest in social innovation? And if I asked you to define it, what would you say it was? It really just starts in a very simple terms. Um, I grew up with family that really um, were community leaders. My mother was an educator. My father worked um, in urban services, uh, building programs for inner city youth. I had adopted brothers and sisters. My first game of soccer when I was young was played with Cambodian refugees. Just we've hosted people from around the world. So I kind of always had this curiosity, like I said, curiosity, but understanding, you know, the world is so much bigger than, um, than our own bubble. And, and there's a lot of, of value that comes from thinking about how to impact or serve others. I think over time, that kind of simple message that was ingrained just became a, a bit more sophisticated and I, right. I explored it in more formal ways. And so the social innovation side of it now, for me, is about thinking really creatively um, in, in fresh ways that are going to be disruptive in terms of changing status quo, but also meeting the bigger challenges that are just unprecedented globally. And so it's, it's a methodology innovation element here is for me um, really about formalizing a little bit more um, some of the methods, some of the tools that really allow us to in, in groups and in, in teams, you know, with ourselves as well, but in, in relationship to others and, um, do some creative problem solving and, and fresh thinking and also this kind of shifting towards mindset. So maybe I'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, it, it, it has so much more to do with your, your mindset and your lens, your way of seeing, thinking and being than it is about following any kind of step of any type of process. Um, 
although that's really helpful for it's almost like language it at least helps us to express where we think we are and where we think right. we want to go right i mean there's no there's no like step one two three but boy if you had a framework within which you could work it's actually much better to get things done do you want to talk a little bit about the specific issues that are really important to you there's a lot to do in the world obviously but you must mm. focus on a few things what are they yeah, you know, and this is, these are kind of perennial questions that I constantly uh, explore with myself, too. So if you'd ask me this question, yeah, it evolves just as the world is evolving. Overarching, and I'll say for me, what I find to be, let me step back and say, I'm always asking first, okay, for starters, where can I make the right intervention or impact? You know, using the, just doing a self-assessment, being self-aware of, okay, what, what knowledge, skills, um, you know, maybe social capital networks do I have at this stage? And, and where can I contribute? That's the ultimate question. Where can I add value? Where can I contribute? Um, but at the same time, it goes in tandem with what do I, what am I really passionate about? What do I care about? Right. And, and part of this, um, the kind of, the thing that I'm very impatient about, it's just one way to frame it, is is this growing sense of divide and inequality that we're seeing globally and how that plays out in terms of negative consequences um, politically, economically, culturally. I, I would reframe it and say inclusivity is really the, where I want to be um, building spaces um, that are moving the needle forward into a more equitable world. I think there's a secular change taking place in the world. If you look at the bifurcation of wealth, not just in your own country, but globally, and we live in developing markets where it's very specifically bifurcated. You know, five rich families in any particular country have 80% of the wealth. You right. want to have a, a reallocation of resources. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to jump into sort of a socialistic category. But, you know, some of the countries that we look at as a shining light, like Sweden or Norway, are very socialistic, right? And the mm -hmm. populations there seem to be quite happy with the sharing of resources. So... We can't have it both ways. But I'd love to know the, sort of the specific examples of things that you focus on in ways that you found within the sort of social innovation space and maybe um, the human-centered design space that are ways that people can actively be useful and have impact. All of that starts with um, an honest assessment of where you are. Like just what is it that you care about? What is it that you want to do? Um, so my journey has has really started, I would say, previously, I'd say, let's say in Asia, um, and then a little bit before that, I was, I was working in DC and, and also in the US as a social, with Ashoka Global, which is uh, really a platform for social entrepreneurs. So I was thinking, okay, market-based solutions, maybe that's it. You know, it's just kind of like a hypothesis. Can we, if capitalism is our dominant framework economically, globally, how can this be more inclusive? And by the way, of course, I have a million critiques about capitalism. I think there's a lot of major inherent challenges and i do think there's a lot of opportunity at the same time so market-based solutions and okay there's an there's a if we're thinking about innovative ways then social enterprise particularly around uh eight to ten years ago was this kind of new uh nascent kind of possibility that's it's now been quite mainstreamed in terms of being a concept i'm teaching you know in a program at thomas Lott university that's actually has a big focus on social entrepreneurship. So 10, 15 years ago, you would be hard pressed to find many undergraduate programs that offer training on how to do social impact and entrepreneurship. And now it's globally, you have conferences about it. So um, all of it's changing. But that being said, I would say that, that my experiment was really about how do we 
this was my hypothesis, you know, how can we have more people empowered at any level, particularly the local level, where they have the closest understanding of the context, they understand the culture, they understand what's going to be a barrier, what won't, in a much faster way than any top-down approach would be. So I was really, my intervention, my my response to, to that, in trying to mainstream that was um, co-founding a company that was really about empowering leadership around that the spaces. Since then, so I, I just want to share. Like, I, I think it's great for anyone to again be self-reflective and evolve as well. You know what you do with your with your philosophy and, and your understanding of the world. So over time, um, my kind of I would say a few years ago, I'd say, well, the aggregate of all of that impact is going to outweigh any types of um, you know major top-down types of things that a private corporation may wish to see happen in terms of CSR or impact. Um, and now I'm, I'm kind of of a, of, I'm not saying it's binary because it's not one or the other, but I'm really more interested in uh, exploring policy and systems change from that level because I'm starting, particularly as I think you can see globally happening, politics is, is really in a, in a, in a very interesting space and there's a lot of room for action and improvement. And I think policy is so deeply important. Um, and so what I'm saying is that, you know, if we start seeing these invisible structures that are barriers or a hindrance to uh, a more inclusive local society or regional society, then that needs to change. And we, and that needs to, that needs to also be met with response from the top down, not only the bottom up. I wanted to ask you about a specific program that I heard about and just get your impression about it, right? So you said we're in a market-based economy and you want to have market-based solutions, right? Or, and that capitalism is kind of the overriding um, system within which we live. And there are definitely criticisms that are available for capitalism. We can talk about that too. And I'd be curious to know what yours are. I have my own. But I was talking to somebody who worked at Naraya, right, which is a Thai company that's been around for a long time. And one of the things they do actually to sort of disintermediate this um, allocation of resources is they try to employ women in the countryside to help them make their bags and give them a sustainable job, right? So to change their focus of, you know, to give them sort of some economic freedom by giving them a job that's real and that doesn't take advantage of them. Are you familiar with what they do in the I'm not familiar with the specific case study, but what you're sharing sounds um, really uh, like something that also is mainstreaming around the world. These kind of hybrid value chains, these supply chains that are thoughtfully integrating um, different players, maybe not the usual suspects, but certainly thinking about fair, beyond fair trade practices, really thinking more holistically about the integration. So one of the things that capitalism does is it throws off excess resources, right? That's the whole point. There are owners of capital and there are people that are get employed by them, right? And mm. the owners of capital take their excess resources to a certain extent and employ other people to make more profit. And I mm. think what this company has decided at some level is why don't we take our excess resource to do some social good as well by employing people who can't come into Bangkok, who don't work in a factory and don't have a way to go get a job. We'll bring the job to them. Mm -hmm. And use some of our economic resources. This sounds, again, like social innovation to me. And be innovative about the way that we bring that economic independence to them and to the women. Because in most cultures, particularly out here, you know, the women in the countryside are suffering more. And that was their way of saying, how can we help them out? And it just seemed to fall into a category that this discussion would facilitate. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think if we can have that type of culture shift coming from the private sector then we have so many, we have such a better chance at getting to the 
you know, global goals than than before. It's going to take everybody thinking and shifting. And I, and I, I do see that happening. I see there's more of a, um, a demand from it, from consumers to understand these types of things, to uplift and support it. And also, I think the next generation of leaders uh, just have different um, core values, I think, comes down to, to values and also some of the conditioning that, and programming that you might have absorbed growing up. Um, it's, it's shifting, you know, you, just a quick small anecdote. Um, I was in Berlin about a year and a half ago working with the Do School, and they were collaborating with um, Mercedes Daimler. And basically, what was interesting in this, I was there as an innovation consultant. What was interesting, the challenge is the shift. So, the car company is thinking, how do we, as a luxury brand, stay afloat when we have, start seeing self driverless cars? We see more car sharing, we have Ubers, we have Lyft, we have Grabs. Um, we don't see a lot of people in a lot of the developed markets really wanting to spend earned money on a luxury car the same way that they may have 20 years ago. At the same time, in the Asian markets, we see the, the status symbol piece uh, actually accelerating and, and people do want to own luxury cars. So I'm, I'm being very generous. So, of course, you know, I don't mean to say it's all this or all that. But what was interesting is they were really trying to understand the shifts of culture and mood and and how resources are being utilized. So sharing economy in Europe is is actually something that even if you are very wealthy is something you will embrace maybe or value perhaps uh, you know more or at the at least same as as being flashy and, and having a luxury car you wouldn't necessarily want that whereas in other cultural contexts that might be the opposite so just seeing these massive changes these arcs these trends um, I think it matters and I think we have to really think about future the future casting element uh, anticipating what's coming and um, I think it can go for the very positive as well, like what you're sharing. Like this example is something I, it would be almost a rarity, an anomaly, I think, 20, 30 years ago. Or maybe it's just an NGO doing that kind of work. But now you're sharing an example of a, a for-profit company that's choosing to make these types of uh, practices a part of their business model. Technology is actually making a lot of that possible in, in some cases. And I'll give you an example. I was talking to a French entrepreneur. Who's, try, who's building a company called Collective Fashion. And their idea, similar to what you said about the luxury car market, is the luxury clothing market. And that is that the supply chain, if you've done any work on the supply chain and logistics, allows people at the beginning of the chain, right? So the farmer that's making the cotton or the person that takes mm -hmm. the cotton from the farm and puts it on a truck and then the person that puts it on a truck and brings it to a market and then the person that puts it on the market and brings it to the end is that if it costs a dollar to produce or to sell that cotton at the beginning, but someone's selling a t-shirt for $150. And most of that is most of that profit and financial benefit is pushed way to the top of that chain, that that's a problem. And that mm. there's enough profit to make at the end, even if even if you are selling it for $150, that's a great thing. If somebody wants to pay you that for a t-shirt with a Gucci mark on it or some other logo, that's beautiful. <laughs> but let's try to find a way to split that money out across the supply chain in a way that maybe still abides by capitalism, but that allows other people to be, like you said, more included and more inclusive. And I think you're right that that's changing from NGO and sort of government-sponsored aid into let's run a company where the idea of the company is to be more inclusive. And that's why we can make such a big profit and then spread that profit out along the supply chain in a way where the farmer who's making that cotton in Africa or in 
the South and the United States can make more money and not live a subsist- on a subsistence wage, right? Yeah, and, and you know what excites me about this too is this is really this conscious capitalism. We talked a little bit about this this wave shifting. You know, it really is something that you'll see in in the you know the top selling business books, conscious capitalism. You have different pioneers from you know Patagonia as an example or Whole Foods sure. as an example, um, in which these are really legitimate case studies about how a company's culture is is really connected to its um, the way it's operating its business model, and so. To me, again, just seeing this traction is really exciting. I, at the same time, I, I'm curious: am I living in a bubble? Sometimes, like, am I just speaking to my own choir? That's drinking the same Kool Aid, and is the rest of the world super, you know, on a different track or, or, or vibe? That's where I. That's what I'm. That's what I'm also quite curious about because there's a lot of enthusiasts that I, you know, we can get excited all day, and at the same time, I see what's happening in some of the, uh, you know headlines and just news and it's just hmm, makes you wonder which direction are we going you're going in the right direction and i'll tell you why i think that's the case change particularly political change and you cannot remove politics from capitalism political change happens um slowly at a glacial pace but it requires people through generations to make sacrifices yeah. and help push those changes and it takes people like you to say, I'm going to work for my entire life to make sure that social innovation isn't just a theory that's taught at Thomas Hutt University, but that by being taught becomes an effective way for people to think, not just inside my bubble, as you mentioned, but get spread out throughout the world. That's, what I, that's the secular change that I was talking about. I think it's real, but it's a generational change. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't just walk into somebody and they have an epiphany and say, you're right, I should be more inclusive. The people that aren't inclusive today are not going to be tomorrow. But the next generation of people who are disincluded but are now empowered and particularly empowered by technology and information can then make that secular change happen permanently as opposed to ephemerally. That's really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think think it's a really um, multifaceted type of... uh, conundrum to explore um and, and one thing I, I wanted to share which is just because it's new and nascent for me and, and i find it to be quite sticky um currently i've been uh supporting in, in a collaborative way one of my one of my friends who i met at the think school of creative leadership which is based out of amsterdam she's from trinidad and tobago incredible lawyer um is just world class and, and, and based out of the uk at this point but she started a program called you solve and so I'm heading to Oxford next uh, next month to, to run a session on how to make, so basically it's the Global Challenges Retreat, and it's about how to actualize, um, you know, the big ideas you have, but, in a, in, but also in, a, in practical, strategic ways that are thinking about business models, innovative pieces, you know, your capital network, your financing. And um, the thing that, that first originally got me excited about working with her is that she was tapping into, so the World Economic Forum last year for the first time puts global anger as one of the top threats around the world. And I don't think that's a big surprise. You know, we see the headlines of... I was was chuckling to myself, but no, that's not a big surprise. Right, not a big surprise. But what's interesting is we're naming it, and then she is also, um, with with a team, it's not just her alone, um, is really plugging into tapping the 
the power of anger and harness, harnessing it for a social good and social change. And there's a whole methodology. It's got neuroscience backing and, and um, you know, empathic methodology. That's a piece of it. But this is what I'm excited about is thinking about, can we tap into this energy? Because um, you might be angry about, like I'm angry about, let's say, the divide. And there's others that are angry about different types of, of things that, you know, I'm not angry about. So there's this common element to humanity. This is something that's for centuries, for let's say the whole story of humanity, we have, we're emotional beings. And if we can have a greater sense of tapping into our understanding where we are and how that interplays um, with others and thinking about how that can, that can actually make a really significant change in a positive way. So versus just saying anger and then getting, okay, that's, that's that conflict thing. We're going to put it over here. We're going to just talk about peace or do something peace oriented, really making a bridge and, and, and getting down to what's possible. So, you know, you could look at the case of um, Trump. Why did he get elected? Well, a lot of people felt disenfranchised. They felt angry and he was able to, to start that negative populism and, and mobilize a, a vote towards uh, of, his, of his base. And now we're seeing, we just saw the midterms the other day, we're seeing a response to that. And you could call it, depending on what side of the, the argument you want to to land on, it could be positive populism. I mean, there's a lot of, we have a lot of firsts. We have the first 22-year-old elected, youngest person ever elected to Senate, which I find to be phenomenal. First openly uh, gay, I believe, governor. Lots of women headed and and you know this is because people were stirred by something that made them care made them angry um it's not like yay let me just make it a better world it's like no this isn't right there's something i need to do so anyway that's the uh, that's kind of like that in action so i find that we're in a global situation and, and thanks to technology we see about ev- what's going on all the time in real time in in many ways um but it's an exciting moment and i and i i don't have time for cynicism that, that's something that i just recently chose to really live in lean into is like I, I can get depressed reading the headlines I used to stop um it had to monitor uh, you know how much I would actually digest or else I just get really really like wow our world is going down the gutter and you know I'm like you know I don't have time for that I I am going to consciously choose to embrace all of the things that are chaotic and crazy and and not let it affect me but let, let it stir me intellectually and and also you know, feed that fire of what's possible in, in a positive way. So that's it's kind of where I sit with with the the politics side too. I think we really got to pay attention to what's happening from from the top. You mentioned a really important topic to me, and that's anger. And it's not just local. You said it's global, and I agree. And I think if you haven't read a book called Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster, who is a writer at New York Magazine, it's probably something that would interest you. One of the things that she talks about. Um, is like Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman. And, you know, you know, Rosa Parks was the woman who apparently sat at the front of the bus in Alabama, right? So fair enough. But she was always portrayed as this kind of stoic woman who just sat there and, you know, wasn't really angry, but just felt like this was the right thing to do. But in fact, she was a longtime protester and was deeply angered by the treatment of not just women, but of people of color in the South. And it was no accident that she was the person who was sitting at the front of that bus. But the point that Rebecca makes in her book is that anger in this case is not a bad thing, like you said, as long as it's channeled in the right way, but it's multi-generational. You have to read this to understand that what we talked about earlier, if you want to use social innovation to affect secular change, you have to be committed long-term. It's a long game. It's just a really interesting read. Anyway.
Thanks for that. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. So I wanted to ask you one more thing, and then I'll let you go. Like, what is your experience at school at Tamasat when you're teaching students about this who may have no idea and no sort of context about social innovation? What's their reaction to these teachings, and does it change over the term or over the multiple terms that mm. you talk to them? Uh, good question. I would say, well, for starters, I'm just blown away by the agency and um, creativity that this generation, not to sound like I'm, you know, I don't want to say pa- sound patriarchal. I don't want to sound patriarchal, old. you know, like this generation. But um, it's, they're, they're thinking on, an, on another level in, in many ways. And I do think that you know, inviting them to really explore, again, methods and tools and frameworks simply as one way to structure their own thinking, but also to bring a team into it. So you can, again, communicate along the same lines is really important. So I teach third year students um, because of the design of the program, which is global studies with emphasis on social entrepreneurship. By the time that they're in my class, which is human-centered design for social innovation, they've already They've had exposure to quite a lot of different methodologies, design thinking, um, different types of competitions and, and, and trainings through, that are particularly happening in Bangkok. Um, so they can be- they do definitely benefit from where we are because there's just so much happening in the city. And so I, I can't say that I'm just like turning on big light bulbs for them. What I can say is that it's a messy process. Um, there's a lot of times that I have to be patient and understand that they as students are not going to get the full picture, the full click maybe by until the end of the semester. Cause it, it's a, it, it's a, you have to embrace beginner's mindset all the time and you have to trust the process. I think that's like the thing that, um, sounds so hollow when you hear it on day one. And then by the end you're like, Oh yeah, that was the thing. Um, <laughs> So, so the thing I'm doing differently this year, because um, this is my third iteration for teaching it, and I'm lucky to do so. I really, this is my favorite class to teach. It's actually the only one I'm teaching at the moment, and I do a lot of other consulting and training around um, the city and the region. But um, I'm actually training them to be consultants for real world projects and clients. So what that right. means is they're going to get the soft skills needed in the quote-unquote, real world of time management, managing expectations, business communication. Um, Also, how do they stay motivated as a team when perhaps the client has different vision or needs? Uh, How do they really structure all of these different things along the way? So before, I I think in the past two years, you know, you pick what you're passionate about and – and then and then do it through this process that I'm I'm kind of shepherding you along the way, which is really starting with empathy, and then it's thinking about real problems, going to the root, not just the symptom, problem definition, ideation, and then prototyping, of course. Um, testing honestly doesn't really happen too much, and that's what they have another semester to to do if they want. Um, meaning like real business modeling, viability, that kind of thing. So. Um, anyway, this year, for example, one of the clients they had to apply, so I had my clients. Basically, um, they're not my clients. They're, they're, they're people on the network. So we have UNDP. We have Social Giver, a tech company. We have one of the biggest co-working spaces, Hubba and Texas. They're clients. We have a few different foundations and startups um, in a makerspace. So they had to put together a pitch to, be, to basically try to attract my students to be their consultants. And so my students then had to apply for which client they wanted to work with. So that's how the teams were generated. How did it break down? So Social Giver is actually a very interesting company, right? You're going to mm-hmm. go to a resort. You're going to go on vacation anyway, right? 
But Social Giver has found a way to allow people to experience, to have positive experiences and also donate money at the same time, right? So the founders of yep. Social Giver are fascinating people. Hubba and Textile are very different businesses. They're a media company and sort of a community building company if you, you know, if you believe their own press. But how did it break down? Which were students more interested in? Uh, to be honest, it was it was a really nice mix, and I was Good. very grateful for that because yeah. we also have Full Circle Filament, which is a uh, basically upcycling plastics to be filament for 3D printing. That's a startup, um, and we have a makerspace on campus that really needs to ha- have some new thinking around it. And then um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Broccoli Revolution. They're a vegan restaurant uh, based here, so they also have a foundation that works in the Soy like, 47. Diff- diff- yeah, exactly, uh, and also in uh, in one of the, the big yeah. malls. Um, but they have something called Sati Foundation, and they work in, in a lot of rural communities doing really important work, urban communities too. So, um, yeah, uh, surprisingly, uh, it was almost perfectly distributed, and that was a relief. Um, <laughs> and originally, I was think my friends were like, you know, this is creating a lot of extra work for you because you're going to have to manage multiple conversations and stakeholders, including, you know, the the people that are quite busy running companies and programs these are real world constraints they don't have a lot of time my students need time to figure out what they're what they need to design so it's been an interesting learning journey i think literally for everyone and we're going to have our 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 pitch uh at the end of this month so i can't tell you how it all went or goes but it's been um i think really really fascinating and very meaningful um to have the students understand that what they're doing is real it can have serious impact. And if it fails, that's beautiful. It's part that's okay. of it, you know, exactly. Cause actually I had a few students kind of, uh, I shouldn't say freak out, but they were very concerned <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago. They're like, okay, wait, is, is our client really expecting this to be like the perfect thing? And I was like, you know, absolutely not. But part of this is all about managing expectations. It can literally be something that makes, you know, something deeply important happen at the same time. Maybe it doesn't fly. And, and, and you know what, None, no matter what, this is a really powerful learning for everyone. It matters. And failure, that's part of the mindset that we have to really shift our thinking around. It's, it's, it's not the conventional failure that we're talking about. It's, it's the what you do with it and how you're learning from it. So those are the intangibles that I think are in this class in ways that were not before. Look, I think that's the perfect way to end, actually, Courtney. So I really appreciate your time. And I'm committed to actually catching up with you in a couple of months to find out just how this course has gone. And I'm really interested in the impact that some of this stuff has had on Social Giver, on Hubba, on Texas, and stuff like that. But I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, and I would just like to also add my last thing is if anyone is listening and they are working in, um, you know, across different different sectors, I would say that one of the things to me that really matters um, is really how are we meaningfully going to be working in an ecosystem uh, space to, to really hit some of the targets needed for, for the SDGs, the, the global goals. And I don't mean that as a hollow, like, yay, let's just talk about the sustainable development goals because it's, you know, there's nice boxes that we can check. I mean, in a very serious way that we have a lot of issues that can be solved by truly meaningful collaborative partnerships and in, 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 um, in collaborations coming together from all sectors. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on that. If anyone's curious or interested, particularly on the ecosystem side of it, I would love to continue that conversation. What's the best way for people to contact you? I would say, uh, 
I have a, a portfolio of sites and there's just basically you can drop me a message and we can continue our conversation um, organically from there onwards. And that's CourtneySavi.com. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Thank you. Super. Well, thanks for such a great energizing lunchtime conversation. Thanks again to Courtney and Michael for that lunchtime catch up. We love having people like this on the show to share their experiences on what they're doing in the impact innovation scene. Now, if you've made it this far, you've probably got a good idea of what the show's all about. If there's anyone that you could think that would be a good guest, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. You can either drop it directly in the comments below, or if you prefer, a DM via the Startup42 Media Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this was your weekly episode, the Impact Innovation Podcast by Startup42 Media.